Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, good morning. I don't know if you noticed, I actually forgot my weapon. I left my Bible in my seat. I had asked my wife to give it to me. I walked up here without it. But uh, the Word of God is where we need to be. So it's good to be here again this morning. And I apologize for last week not being able to be here. It was a, an 11th hour adjustment we had to make in that uh, half of my household uh, contracted COVID. And fortunately, everybody's good and we're out of the quarantine thing. And uh, I discovered I definitely have no interest in the idea of purgatory. I know some churches teach that, but purgatory is where you're alive, but you can't live. And, uh, and I have no desire for that. Quarantine taught me that. So I'm an extrovert, uh, and so I enjoy being around people. I get energy from being with people, so I am feeling really good this morning. And hopefully you are as well. And for all you introverts out there, I know you're tolerating all these people around you. Uh, so anyway, just have a little tongue in cheek. Well, this is an opportunity we have to go into the Word of God. And I'm going to ask you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And we're going to be able to uh, take some time to interact with what I believe to be some of the most incredible text and words ever spoken on the face of the earth. This, the greatest sermon ever preached by Jesus himself. This text, uh, we began a few weeks ago, and, uh, and the, the way I felt best uh, to be able to um, explain the mindset behind the words that Jesus is speaking was to begin in verses 17 to 20 of Matthew chapter 5. In those verses, Jesus confronts a reality that the people of his day were dealing with. They were under the teaching uh, and religious leadership of what we would say is the uh, Pharisaical movement. And the Pharisees were known as being pretty devout and committed to living out the, these standards that they would say are the righteous standard and would set the precedent or profile for what a righteous person looks like. And so that's the mindset of those who are around at Jesus' time. And so imagine when Jesus says in verses 17 to 20 that if you think the righteous standard of the Pharisees is enough to get into the kingdom of God, you need to know that unless you go beyond that standard, the religious standards you've been taught, unless you go beyond it, you certainly will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That would have been an alarming statement to have been said to you if what you saw and thought was those are the ones that have figured out the highest standard. They're going the furthest in living out a righteous standard of life. And so it would not have been encouraging to those who would have heard that. In fact, they would have, they would have been alarmed because they would have felt like if their standard isn't enough, then no one's standard's enough. And therein, they discover truth. There isn't a standard that mankind can achieve that would make you righteous enough to earn the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus got their attention. And so in his sermon, he is teaching about what they've been taught, you know, in regards to the law, but going deeper with it. And what you're going to find throughout the Sermon on the Mount is it all comes back to the heart. 
while the Pharisees were teaching how it would come out more in the uh, evidential way, the manifestation of how you would live outside of yourself and be impressive towards other people, Jesus kept bringing it back to the heart of the matter. After all, it was God who said back in the Old Testament that he looks upon the heart or his man looks on the outer. So God is making a statement here. And what we find in the beginning of Sermon on the Mount is what is called the Beatitudes. It's in the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 5. And those Beatitudes are basically the profile of a righteous person that God approves of, that God affirms, that God blesses. As we looked into the term blessed or blessed, which is, begins every beatitude, it is a statement of God projecting upon somebody blessed or approved as the one who does dot, dot, dot. And then you find after that beatitude statement of affirmed, approved as that person, a promise for God for each one. And what we explained a few weeks ago, and this is just bringing you off to speed, is that you really need to receive the Beatitudes progressively. They build on top of each other. They should not be separated from each other. So if the profile of a righteous person that the Pharisees laid out is a failure, the profile of a person who reflects these Beatitudes is the affirmed one, the approved one, the one who is blessed. So, as we look at this, consider them progressively. So I begin in verse three. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. And today we'll spend time with blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So to help our minds get to the place of receiving verse eight, let's go on a journey of the first seven, a uh, few verses of this in the Beatitudes. It begins with blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Keep in mind, verse 20, Jesus says, if you think the righteousness of the Pharisees is enough, you need to know that unless you go past them and that standard of righteousness, go past it, certainly you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So that highlights verse three when it says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And when we looked at what the meaning of poor in spirit means, it's basically a person who acknowledges their true state. A person who acknowledges their true state. And that true state being, there is nothing I can do to be seen as righteous in the eyes of God. I can't impress him. I can't provide any kind of markers to say, see, I'm approved. But rather, it's a full acknowledgement that I am not all that I thought I was. I am truly a sinner. Then the next, the progression, going into the next beatitude, then it says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, which is, when we're looking at it again, it's mourning over the sinful state. When you acknowledge before God, I'm a sinner, and there is nothing I can do to make myself right before you, so I need you. It is to mourn and grieve over that state of sin and regret who you are and what you become. And as a result, it says, then blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And, and the meek being that which is uh, humble. And you know, the world does not celebrate the meek. It celebrates the bold, the brash, the harsh. The conqueror takes the world. But God looks to the meek. He affirms the meek, the humble in spirit. So if we acknowledge that we are a sinner and we grieve over that sin, then we approach God with more of a humble spirit and we begin to long then 
and hunger for righteousness or right relatedness between us and God. As we discovered the meaning of the term righteous is right relatedness and, and, and that not only includes God but it includes other people. And so as we acknowledge our true state and we grieve over it and we become humble before God, we begin to long for our right relatedness between us and God and then that parlays into having right relatedness between each other. God comes to the rescue and says, I will fill you with that righteousness. You will be rewarded for that desire. And then we're starting to see the, the inward journey beginning to manifest itself outwardly as we become, again, grieving over our fallen state and we become humble before God and that right relatedness begins to happen. It also creates a right relatedness between each of us and we acknowledge we are recipients of an incredible amount of mercy. And as a result, we become merciful towards other people. In other words, we pay it forward. We become a merciful person because we are objects of mercy. We've received so much from God. That right relatedness between us and God becomes right relatedness between us and mankind. And it manifests through a merciful spirit. As I said, there is a promise to each one of these, and so the progression is interesting. He begins with the one who is poor in spirit, the one who acknowledges that they are a sinner in need of help. God says, the kingdom of heaven is yours. And for the one who grieves about that sin, is embarrassed by that sin, God says, I comfort you. And we talked about the term in this, in the original language was a comfort that's like an embrace so God hugs you. He embraces you when you grieve over your sin. And then those that are humble because they realize they are in need of God's work. So they go before God not saying, look at me. Look what I've done. They go before God and say, I can't. I need your help. And so as a result, they become humble in spirit. And what does God say about the meek? He says, yours is going to be that you inherit the earth, which is counterintuitive to anything we would accept in society to think the humble are actually not only going to be received by God in the kingdom of heaven, but they are actually going to experience success here on this earth. Why? Because they're gonna start discovering right relatedness between each other begins with this, and that humility then causes us to be much more capable of interacting with each other. The kingdom of heaven, yes, but also to inherit success in the earth. Then the awareness of mercy. We become merciful, not merciless. We have compassion towards each other. Out of that which we've received, we now pay forward. And again, that right relatedness between us and God is now manifesting itself between each other. But then God says, not only have you received mercy and then you pay it forward, you'll continue to receive mercy from me. And as I've studied and pondered that this past week, even after preaching it last week, I just say, amen. Thank you, God, that mercy wasn't a one-time thing because I am still somebody making mistakes that is in need of mercy. And God says, if I am merciful, because I acknowledge I've received so much mercy, God's gonna continue to pour mercy upon me. Those promises matter much to the heart. And then it leads to this statement that gets to the heart of the matter, if you will, when it says in Matthew 5, 8, after saying, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, then he says, blessed are are the pure in heart, for they will see God. For they will see God. I want to share a little something I journaled this past week. Just as I was contemplating this text, and after I'd studied the meaning of some of the original words that were written in the Greek for that audience and trying to understand how they would receive it, I began to self-reflect. I want to share a portion of that with you. So bear with me as I read. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. In a person's journey of faith, there are often sweet beginnings. Think about it. If you have had a relationship with Jesus Christ, can you remember some of the most impassionate times between you and him as your faith began to take root? There are sweet beginnings. But then I wrote, and then the challenging middles that affect how we finish in life. So in a person's journey, there's sweet beginnings and challenging middles. The challenging middle is what you might call the daily grind. It is where the daily mundane become a challenge to stay sharp, sincere, and faithful. It is the pursuit of holiness. And as we've studied the life of Jesus it's the way we then love God and love others and live truth and proclaim him to others in our relational world, our oikos and beyond. The journey starts with the realization that we're not the answer, but in reality, we're utterly hopeless due to our sin. We grieve it and we're humbled by it. And we seek to be in right relationship with God and others. We become merciful by paying forward the mercy we receive, but... A new day starts. New challenges come. Repeated temptations start coming up again. Common idols creep up and capture my eyes. Pressure for social confirmation comes from all sides. Seeking identity and approval from the rest of society and due to the day-after-day day confrontation of these things, numbness begins to take root and creep in. We have days where we are alarmed by the lack of God's presence, but we slowly dismiss those feelings and ultimately begin to numb out or succumb to the standards of the world. We hold in one fist I'm a follower of Christ. But in the other fist, a me-centered worldview. At first, we cover it well around those who are our brothers and sisters in Christ. But eventually, the condition of our heart and these two fists become too much to cover. We've changed. We've changed back to what we were in the beginning and we revert to our old habits and nature. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The challenging middle is that place that we all begin to deal with on a daily basis. I'm speaking mostly to those in this room that have experienced the saving work of Jesus Christ in your life at some point. And as life goes on, you discover the challenging middle of what does it look like to live each day connected to the work of God in you and around you. Each day brings a new challenge that might push you towards old patterns. Temptations come uninvited that you don't welcome common idols, things you long for, think highly of, spend a lot of time giving to, even spending most of your money on perhaps, grow a stronger foothold inside of you. Pressure from social confirmation. Can you relate? We're so divided right now in society and we become entrenched in our perspective and out of trying to create connectedness to each other, that pressure to conform to each person's ideal is astoundingly strong. As we fight these things in time, we come to this place, and I've been there many times in my journey with Christ, where I feel numb. Some of you walked into this room today numbed out. 
You didn't come in expecting to be moved in your heart. You didn't expect to have anything provoke your thinking or perhaps that there might be something you might actually need to change. Some of you, as you go through this list, you're like, you could say, I can relate to that. Temptations that you thought were long gone from your life, all of a sudden are finding attractiveness again. Idols that you had been confronted in years ago, you start to realize they're back. And you hold tightly to them. Oh, I love Jesus. But I also love these things. And they war against each other. The numbness grows. And then we start looking for ways that we can blame why we feel numb. Well, it's the church. They haven't been playing the music that I like. The preacher, he's preaching an old message. I've heard it a thousand times before. It's the people. They don't really engage in worship. We start using these things as excuses for why we feel numb. When in reality, there's something that's been going in your, on in your heart that has grown to get us there. It's real easy to look outward for the cause of the numbness or the distractedness or the sense that God's presence has long been gone. It's long in your rearview mirror. You haven't experienced his presence in years. Yet Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. As I've been studying these, each of these beatitudes, it's been fascinating to go back and understand the fullness of the terms. The term pure is as we would think it to be. But let's consider it in the full context of this. To be pure in heart is one who is sincere, virtuous, integritous of heart. What you see on the outside is truly what's going on on the inside. Hypocrisy would be its antonym. Blessed are the pure in heart, not blessed are the hypocritical or the hypocrite. Blessed are the pure in heart. And as I studied the understand within this, it actually can correlate with the term holy. Blessed are those who are holy, pure in heart, for they are becoming so much like Christ that they see Christ in all they do. They're becoming so close to Christ, they can see Christ working around them. Which then leads me to say this, it is the person who is becoming more and more like Jesus from the inside out is the person who is pure in heart. Their motives are sincere, they're the real deal. And Jesus says, approved, affirmed, Blessed is the one whose heart is the real deal. Sincere, integritous, holy. But then there's the promise where it says, blessed is a person affirmed and approved is the person who is pure in heart for they will see God. Now, it was said to me, just a couple weeks ago, as I was conversing with an individual, not about anything serious, but the person said, is it really an important measure to learn a second language when none of us can really speak the first language very well? Now, I appreciate some of this, the laughter in the room because that's exactly what I did. Because I'm thinking, yes, when I moved to central Pennsylvania, there were things that people made fun of in the way I spoke because I didn't say things the way they say them here. But it's also true that for somebody having moved here, you say things the way 
You say them in a way that just makes me scratch my head. I mean, who says, can I get you a drink a while? That makes no sense. But yet you think it's normal because you're from here. If you come to the Midwest, it doesn't mean anything different to us to hear the word tennis versus tennis. Our E's and our I's sound the same. Attention, not attention. Pen, not pen. So language has a way of misconstruing the true meaning. So it is often important that sometimes when you go to the other language to understand what was being said to someone, you can better understanding it understand it when you parse it. So for the next couple moments, the English professor in this room or teacher is going to be downright giddy. Because the phrase here, seeing God, for they will see God, is in the future middle indicative plural. That's changing some lives right now. I can see it. Some of you are just like, he just sang a beautiful song. And the rest of you are like, it's been way too long since I took grammar class. Let me explain to you what future middle indicative plural means. In particular, the middle voice. It means that when Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God, they are a part of the cause that also means they're going to experience this future, but now, it's imminent. Which means that to say, for they will see God, is not something that's just saying that you'll see God in the kingdom of heaven someday face to face. No, it is saying that for the person who is pure in heart, integritous of heart, and is not a hypocrite, that is a sincere working of God from the deep within coming out, they will see God at work in them now and in around them going forward. That's what the middle voice means. It is saying there is a, an imminency to this understanding of seeing. As one person put it, it's like being admitted into the more immediate presence of God. Think about this. When people are looking for a church, what are they looking for? They're looking to be in a place where they can experience the presence of God. That's often one of the primary indicators they're looking for. Then they'll also add some other things like we're looking for a place that teaches the word of truth or we're looking for music that I feel like I can worship to. There's, there's several things. But ultimately, in the end of the day, people want to connect with God, not with the pastor. They want to connect with God. So the promise of Jesus is this. If you allow yourself to become poor in spirit and acknowledge where you stand before God and as a part of that, you grieve the sin that has separated you from God and you become humble before God, instead of thinking about how you're gonna impress God, you're thinking about how you need God. So you begin to long for that right relatedness between you and him, which then begins to operate in such a manner where you find right relatedness between each other. And because of the mercy, you start recognizing, man, I've been given a tremendous amount of mercy because of what God's done to overlook and pay for my sin. I become merciful towards other people. So that right relatedness is beginning to grow. And then Jesus says, and your heart is becoming transformed. It's becoming more like me. And as a result, you're gonna see what I'm doing, not only in your life, but you're gonna begin to see with clarity what I'm doing in the lives of those around you. When I get around somebody that I can just tell is walking with Jesus, some of the indicators I see are they can see God at work so clearly. It's not always in them. They see God working around them, not because of them, it's just that because they're walking so near the heart of God, they can see what he's doing. He's not a stranger to them. So God's promise is that as our heart becomes so, more, so much more melded with him, we will experience his presence daily as we walk sincerely with him.
Let me say that again. God's promises is that we'll experience his presence daily as we walk sincerely with him. This daily desire to experience God is fulfilled. Blessed are those who seek right relatedness with God, for they will be filled. So the condition of your heart is an issue that we have to reconcile. He's claiming that one who will see, the experience, see and experience God is one whose heart approaches him with purity and sincerity, acknowledging sin, being honest about it, not withholding it, asking for help, acknowledging that there's nothing I can do on my own but need God's help, and being humble about it, and then enjoying his presence, his relationship, and acknowledging his mercy begins to make our hearts pure. Holy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. What's interesting, as one commentary brought it out, this is literally a direct rebuttal to the Pharisaical movement. You see, as part of the Pharisaical movement, in preparation for seeing God, they did several things to prepare themselves that were more about being seen than it was to prepare to see. Consider, they walked into the temple area and the first thing they would do is wash their hands. We know that this was a pretty significant point that they would make sure that others would see, I am preparing myself to be shown as worthy to be in the presence of God. Then they would offer their gifts, giving the 10% of their, their income, making sure that others would see it. Then they would make their prayers heard by the masses with many words, flowery and significant. You see, their approach to seeing God was more about being seen by others than it was to really prepare themselves to see. You understanding what I'm saying? It's very tempting in our approach to experiencing God to put on clothes that are about being seen by others rather than truly preparing our hearts to see God. Consider Pilate. Interesting story. On the day that Jesus was going to be crucified, there was a moment that happened where Pilate felt like he was caught in the middle. He's under pressure from multiple people, from different angles. So what does he do? He washes his hands in front of everybody and says, I am innocent of this. So his way of showing innocence had nothing to do with his heart. It was an outward act before a group of people. Who was he trying to speak this to? Well, first of all, the one place of confirmation that mattered a lot to his heart was he had a wife that was warning him about who Jesus was. So Pilate feared the issues that might come to fray within his own home, so he washes his hands so that his wife can see. But then he has the Roman law. And, and, and that says that he needs to do this. But then he also has the religious leaders that are saying this needs to be done to this man to which he disagreed. Now my question to you is this. Knowing the story, if you do, about Pilate on that day, was Pilate innocent? Was he pure in heart? Or did God see right through the act? God esteems the heart. In fact, I would say the condition of your heart in being able to experience daily the presence of God is what matters. And as I shared a phrase I grew up with, God doesn't give a hill of beans 
about you washing your hands before you come see him. He cares more that you come to him, recognizing your need for him, humble in heart, longing for a right relatedness with him. As we've been doing over these past few weeks in the Beatitudes, we want to make sure that we capture how this plays out in real day, everyday life. And so we go to a biblical story that is an example of how that beatitude plays out. So I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 8. So if you have a Bible in your hand, just go to the right a little bit. We're going to go to Acts chapter 8. And we're going to hear a story about a man named Simon, as we might call him, the sorcerer. Simon the sorcerer. Simon is a figure that, that, that Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, felt was an important story for us to hear because I believe it's a warning to you and I about guarding the heart. Because Simon did not guard the heart and it manifested into something that's embarrassing quite frankly. So let's begin in verse nine and understand the story because Luke does a great job giving us context. Verse nine, now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted all that he was someone great and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is righteously, rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized, and he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me this, also this ability, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. I'm going to stop there. Let's consider Simon for a moment. Real person, right? He was a self-promoter. He enjoyed the accolades. For some time and years, he had wowed people with his ability to do sorcery that must have been quite impressive. He enjoyed his title, a man from God who displays the power of God. But then Philip comes along, preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. People stop following and listening to Simon the sorcerer and begin to listen and observe and follow and believe the message that Philip brought about Jesus. It was even in this that there was a, much that was going on around those that were preaching the gospel that attracted Simon. Look at the end of verse 13. It says that, that he was astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw as he traveled with Philip. So this man who had experienced much of the great powerful things that can intrigue people enjoyed the adrenaline rush of the experiential 
was now attracted to the gospel because there too was an experience he had never seen or experienced before. So in verse 13, it says, he believed in the message, was baptized, likely by Philip. And it says that he followed Philip everywhere Philip went. He became a leader as part of the team that Philip led. We'll know that by what Peter says later. But indeed, everybody would observe Simon has changed. Simon has changed. He is a new person. He is following after God. We have baptized him and have included him on our team. Word gets back to Jerusalem. The Samaritans, they're receiving the gospel. There was intrigue from Jerusalem, so they send John and Peter. I mean, these are the, this is the power team. They come up to Samaria to check on this message that they had heard, that Samaritans, of all people, were coming to faith. As part of their journey, they began to pray over people, and they received the Holy Spirit And apparently there were some manifestations that were pretty incredible that caused Simon to be envious. The old adrenaline rush junkie behaviors begin to rise up inside of him. The me-centeredness begins to find a root again. The opportunity to be praised and admired by the community once again was becoming strong in his heart. At first, nobody probably noticed. But Simon was waging a battle in his heart where he became two-fisted. I love Jesus, but boy, did I love those days when the people praised my name. The battle was being lost inside of his soul. And then he couldn't help himself. He says before Peter, hey, I've got a lot of money. Can I buy some of that? Now, you and I look at that and say, how ridiculous is that? But are we any different? Do we not mix our religion with the, the standards of the world at times when our heart goes far from him? Our eyes become attracted to things on this earth rather than being led by God himself. And again, it manifests as we talked earlier that we become so me-centered in the way we look at things around us and it begins to harm relationships as we become merciless and harsh towards other people. But in this moment, it came out. He had to have it. His temptations overwhelmed him. Then what does Peter say? Verse 20, may your money and perish with you and because you thought you could buy the gift of God, you have no part with this team any longer because your heart is not right before God. Then he says, repent of this wickedness. Pray to the Lord in hope that he might forgive you having such a thought in your heart. Do you hear the Beatitudes in this? Peter tells him to start back over. When in verse 22, he says, you have no part in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. So what's he tell him? You need to acknowledge your heart is not right before God. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Then he says, and then you need to beg God by repenting of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in hope that he might forgive you. Blessed is those those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Humble yourself, and you'll experience success on this earth. And then ultimately, he says, may God forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Your heart's not right with God. 
You're not rightly related with him. And it's breaking the relationships between us and you. You're merciless. You're not merciful. And you're not pure in heart. Your heart is full of bitterness and captive to your sins. This is the sad story of what it looks like when you don't guard your heart. So let's consider the first thing. As a takeaway, what I would encourage you to consider is that we have to guard our hearts. Remember as I began this, as I talked about the, 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 the struggling middle, as a result of not guarding our hearts, we get caught in sins, old sins coming back. They start off as a little root, but we dismiss it as thinking it's no big deal. There have been many times when I found myself in a bad place and it's because I didn't guard my heart. Then I need to come to a place, and this is the next takeaway, is to acknowledge every day that I need to yield my heart to God. I need to yield my heart to God and then see the grace and mercy that's extended to me, not because of my efforts, but because of the heart of God. So it's called heart calibration every day. I guard my heart to protect myself through the help of God from those things that wanna wage against my, my temptations, my weaknesses. But then I invite on a daily basis the work of God to calibrate my heart to being near his And then finally, when I see sin, even if it's small, even if it's a small idol or a small giving to the temptation, not, not a full bore going into it like you used to do, but just a little bit, are you willing to call it out and repent of it? You see, it's one thing to guard our heart, to protect ourselves from the former past, it's another thing to, to yield our spirit to it. But as the spirit of God is now working in us, he is going to reveal where sins are creeping up. Are you willing to then repent? As what Peter told Simon, repent so that you can experience the forgiveness of God again. You see, it's very easy to live each day and to get up in those challenging middles to say, the world centers around me. So I serve my interests, sometimes at the cost of others. It starts off small, but I begin to see it leaking out of me when my relationships with each other become broken. And so when I yield my heart on a daily basis, There comes that point where, as part of the yielding, God reveals. Sometimes he reveals through his word. Sometimes he reveals through the workings of the Holy Spirit in me. And sometimes he reveals my right relatedness is broken by the fact that somebody that's my brother or sister in Christ confronts me. And let me tell you, that does not feel good. I don't like it when somebody confronts a sin they see in me. Every part of my being wants to defend myself, consider myself to be right. But then I feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, no, you need to hear this. So then the question becomes, are you willing to then repent and say, you're right. I become poor in spirit. I am not right in this area and I grieve it. We humble ourselves. And then we become hungering for that right relatedness with God and others. 
Blessed are the pure in heart. Outward and inward. Sincerity, holiness, honesty, hypocrisy is far from it. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God at work in them, and they'll see God at work around them. Let's pray. God, I know that people came in here today with a lot of things that could have distracted their mind and their hearts. Perhaps there's anger, perhaps there's frustration, perhaps they were numbed out already. God, you desire to do that work in us every day, that process of filtering our soul to where we come before you and we just keep acknowledging how great is your mercy. God, I pray that you would work deep in our hearts, not let us turn aside from that which is getting a foothold, that we'd realize that there are little sins that maybe have captivated us and are taking over us. Don't let us dismiss it. Because God, we want to see you. We want to see you working in that area of our life. And then we want to be able to see what you're doing around us. And not have our vision so blurred. So God, in these moments now, would you work in each and every heart by your Holy Spirit? In Jesus' name, would you stand, please?
music. Here's my heart. So we know in scripture that Jesus said, join me in my yoke because my yoke is not heavy. In fact, I provide a lighter burden. You see, the way a yoke works is that there's usually one leading animal when they're in the stocks. And that leading animal provides the direction and the strength the other one nearly, merely needs to walk alongside. Jesus wants to be the one to give us strength for each day. And when we realize that that strength comes from him, then we merely need to worship him and let him lead the way. So blessed are the pure in heart for they're going to see God do a work in them and they'll begin to see the work that God's doing around them. If you have never experienced the saving work of Jesus Christ, let me tell you, life has a lot more fulfillment and a lot more hope when you're walking with a God who knows the future and can guide your steps on how to find life without all the damage and hindrances that come through me-isms. I found it's worthy of giving up my life and my rights to his leadership because I find that it actually heals my relationship with other people. So if you would like to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning, just call out to him and acknowledge that you're the sinner that we've been talking about. I, I had to do the same thing, to acknowledge, and I'm still doing it every day, to acknowledge I'm a sinner in need of the saving work of Christ. And then go on a journey of becoming right related with him. We would love to pray with you and talk with you. We'll have people in the encounter room, which is to my left, that would be glad to talk with you. You could talk with somebody that may be brought to you this morning, and they'd be glad to as well, and I'll be up front. But for those of us who have known Jesus a long time, Maybe this provokes something. Maybe you came in here numb. Maybe you need to re-encounter God and start over. Humble yourself before him and go on a journey of discovering right relatedness once again. Because the promise is God will fill you. And as a result, you'll experience healing between each other. You'll be merciful. You'll be paying it forward. You'll be gracious. You'll be in good union with other people. You'll be encouraging and affirming. That's what God wants to do through you for the sake of others. So having said that, we celebrate God today. We've celebrated him in our worship. And this afternoon at 4.30, we're gonna be sharing some things that are pretty exciting. And we want you to come prepared to celebrate God with us. There's no football this afternoon. Unless you're a tennis fan, there's not much on sports at all. So why don't you come? Take the part of the afternoon. Be here with us and celebrate God for some amazing things that have gone on in our midst. In Jesus' name, I pray for God to reveal himself more fully than ever so that your heart experiences the purity that God offers. Amen. You're dismissed.